Hi, this is Angela Richardson, the Skull Basin Cerebrovascular Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reminding you to sign up to contribute to the NREF through Amazon Smile. The NREF has contributed $30 million to the future of neurosurgery over the past 40 years. If you have any questions or problems with the registration, you can email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are delighted to have back on the show a former guest and friend of the podcast, Dr. Jean-Pierre Mabasser, who currently serves as the president of Goodman Campbell Brain and Spine in Indianapolis, Indiana. And today, we decided to mix things up a little bit and turn the table somewhat. Um, My dear friend, mentor, and co-host, Dr. Wang, is turning things around and getting in the hot seat himself. Today, we're going to have Dr. Mabasser interview Dr. Wang about innovation, spine surgery, and hopefully get a little bit into the uh, dicey and exciting side of life as a hotshot minimum invasive spine surgeon. Dr. Mabasser, welcome to the show. Thank you, JP. I appreciate it. Uh, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so this is going to be a little different for you. Are you ready for this? Yeah, uh, I'm, I, I signed my disclosure and waiver, so yeah, hit me with any questions you might have. Okay, well, we're going to start right off the bat with something that I know makes you uncomfortable. Is we're going to talk about you. So why don't you give us a little history about you, your background, uh, what your interests were that got you into this area of medicine, and your family as well? Well, um, so I am a redneck. I've never lived north of the Mason-Dixon line. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, actually Marietta, Georgia. And uh, I left high school early. I went to Georgia Tech for a year. Then I transferred over to Stanford, went to college and medical school at Stanford, did my residency at USC. I was there for a while uh, as a faculty member running the spine program. And then uh, now at University of Miami, where I did my fellowship. So I've always lived in the South, uh, love it, uh, and uh, consider myself a proud American. So, Mike, you brought something up interesting, and if you already knew this, I'm going to be a little embarrassed, but did you know that I also grew up in Atlanta? I heard that, but a different, were you in DeKalb County, right? No, I was actually in Sandy Springs. Where did you go to high school? Oh, wow. Sandy Springs was very close and off of, uh, off of the Chattahoochee River. Yeah, I, I went to school at Walton High School. Okay, I went to Lovett High School. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we were like rivals. Yeah, That's awesome. Right. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your family. So my parents are obviously ethnically Chinese, Han Chinese, and my uh, dad is, he immigrated during um, World War II when the Japanese invaded and then um, went to Taiwan and then uh, came to America for college, or for, I'm sorry, for grad school. My mother is uh, Taiwanese and they met here in America and uh, my brother and I were born here. We're both doctors and, you know, like I said, if it wasn't for... America, I don't know where we would be. We'd certainly, uh, we probably wouldn't be here at all, I guess. Is your brother a rock star much like yourself? 
<laughs> he doesn't listen to this podcast. My brother is about the opposite of me. Uh, you you could have him in a room and you probably wouldn't know he's there for weeks. Uh, he is the smartest man I know, the most ethical person I know, but he's a very, very quiet person. So he's not awake at 5 a.m. out partying at meetings every day before he gives a talk on the podium. <laughs> no, no, he does not. Uh, he, he's not a heavy drinker like me. He's not a, a guy who likes to party much. He'll probably live much longer. All right. And your wife, tell me, what is it that your wife found the most attractive about you? I, probably nothing. My wife is the most amazing person. And I'm not saying that just because she's my wife. Uh, she is uh, she is definitely the better half. When people meet her, they don't want to talk to me anymore. Just yesterday, one of the residents found this old, decrepit animal, this dog, and brought it over to our house. And this is like a weekly occurrence where people find these strays, bring them to her, and she like like resuscitates them and then finds them owners. Um, and that's just the kind of person she is. She's just you know everybody who knows Amy knows that she's a She's a shining star and like a light in the room. I, I, when I met her, I said it was like meeting Snow White. It was literally like that. Uh, and I'm not a romantic person like that. So she's really fantastic. I, I owe a lot to her. Well, that's good. Every, everybody needs somebody like that in their life. Well, they would, they would want to have somebody like that, I would hope. Yeah. yeah. All right. So today we're going to hit innovation because I see you as an innovator. And I see you as a early adopter. But I wanted to stop and sort of say... Tell me what you see yourself more as. If you had to choose between an early adopter and an innovator, which one defines you more? You know, I, I, I tell people now that I worship at the Church of Spine. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm Baptist, but I'm an ideological person when it comes to neurosurgery and spine. And it, it, it isn't intrinsic to me. We've had some real innovators like John Adler and Mike McMillan on this podcast I am more a innovator and early adopter out of what I think is necessity, which is a, a true understanding that what we do today is inadequate. And I'm always struggling to find that new angle to, to be better and, and not always succeeding, by the way, just to be clear. Um, I, I try to be at the front line only because I'm so desperate to try to advance things just another foot, another inch you know, before I run out of steam and retire and all that. So I, I wouldn't consider myself um, a true innovator. I, I have some creative skill um, and I can contribute it in that way, but I'm not a genius the way some people are in, in this area. You, however, I, I consider a true early adopter. You, are, um, you, you take the newest technology and you really, you study it much better than I do. You you take it to a level far beyond what I, I can do, I think. And I'm not just being pandering. I, I really feel that way with minimally invasive surgery. Well, today we're going to talk about you, my friend. So, uh, you know, one of the things I look at in early adoption, there's, there's different sort of mentalities. And one is somebody sees something, they recognize the value of it, and they want to champion it and promote it. Then there's another side to this, which is people that always look at something and say, how can I make this better? And do you see yourself in one of those camps more than the other? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know that I'm always trying to do the newest things. Uh, we just did our first augmentics case, the virt uh, augmented reality surgery last week. We just uh, use a, a brand new uh, expandable lateral cage for ACRs today. Um, I, I, I think that I would be an early adopter like you. Um, you know, I'm always struggling to find a better way to do things, but I will, I will say as a word of caution, 
I completely understand those people who want to stick in the middle of the pack or even at the back of the pack because doing that is incredibly psychologically stressful because you're you're really in uncharted territory. You don't really know what kind of complications you're going to deal with. Um, you know, you can't really be authoritative at any point, right? Because there, there is no basis for which you're speaking really in, in, in if, except in a very fundamental sense. And so it makes life psychologically very difficult. I think uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was the one who said, you know, being, being intelligent meant, you know, holding two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time, which is harder than it might appear to be. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's an interesting thing. So I guess what I'm, I'm curious about with you is whenever I look at a new product or a new technology, I see everything wrong with it. I see what needs to be changed, what needs to be fixed. And that's where my mind goes. Is, is that where your mind goes or does it go in a different direction? No, it, it doesn't really go the way you do. And I, maybe that's one of the differences why you, you stick with a technology that's new and you really refine it. I, I've seen you do that with like navigation. Like I've seen your talks about MIST lift, how you really have taken navigation to sort of the ultimate degree in which it can be used. I tend to focus on the positive. Um, even though that's not my nature, I look at a new technology. I'm like, wow, that's that's like a step forward. Of course, not knowing what other pitfalls are around, right? And it makes it easier, I think, to go to the new stuff. Um, and then I try to put that stuff together. I try to combine the the new things. For example, uh, one of our young faculty, Timur Yurikov, is very much in augmented reality, and and he started to use these heads up display goggles to look at imaging while you're operating, like X rays and stuff. And so I'm like, well, let's put that with the endoscopic surgery. So now we can do an endoscopic surgery where you can see the X rays with the navigation, with the with the with the endoscopic view, right? And so we're always trying to find those little kernels of of benefit and trying to push them together, right? So how do you do that with endoscopy when you're looking at the screen, you're not looking down at the patient? How does that augmentics or that virtual reality work? Oh, well, you have to wear a headset, right? You have to wear a set of goggles or a head frame that- No, no, uh, I understand. But usually in endoscopy, you're looking at the screen and with the virtual reality, you're looking down at the patient with the overlay of the spine image underneath the skin. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And and the type of technology we were talking about is looking at the imaging studies too, right? The, the, the preoperative imaging studies at the same time. And so you have to, I guess it might cause a lot of neck pain in the future, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of gazing around, I guess, which is, which may be very hard for some people to do. Yeah. So let me ask, you know, when I look at some of the things that you've been doing, like the awake T-lifts and the really sort of elderly people that you're doing these minimally invasive lumbar fusions on, obviously at some point in a process, you've got to make a jump and that jump is, let's just say, take it one that some people think may be simple, but doing it with the patient awake, that's one of the things that has kept me away from endoscopy is putting the patient in a different position, having an anesthesiologist who's going to keep the patient still while we do an awake procedure, and just getting through that sort of first hurdle has always sort of caused me pause. How did you get through that? How do you get to the other side on that first initial jump? You know, I'm glad you asked about that. It's it's very scary because, you know, when you're in the uncharted territory, it's it's 
complicated. And, and for those of you who don't know, the wake fusion, it's not done with a spinal, right? So people are sedated. So they're moving around, unlike a spinal where they don't feel anything. And so I can tell you that a big transformation came when I moved from LA to Miami. In LA, I felt like the patient population was relatively sensible, uh, mainstream, and uh, educated. Maybe like your population in Indianapolis. When I moved to Miami, I realized that the patients here, they're looking for the fountain of youth. And you would see people literally in the ninth decade of life who refused to tolerate their current situation with pain or disability or whatever, and they would be looking anywhere for a solution. And so I, I kept struggling with the difficulties with what with our surgeries. And I realized that maybe a third or more of our problems in surgery relate to the anesthetic itself, right? Putting people to sleep, waking them up, having the cardiac stress and all that. So we tried to figure out a way to do this. And I, I actually was in China. I was on an airplane with... Um, with a very, 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 very famous neurosurgeon. And he was telling me about um, how he does carotid endarterectomy under local anesthesia. And, and we had this great conversation on this four-hour flight. And, he, and I was like, carotid? You're sewing up the carotid and the patient's moving their neck? Like, don't you turn them to the side? He goes, yeah, but it's better because we know if they're going to have emboli. And I said, wow, if you can do that, I mean, surely I can do a spine surgery, right? Yeah, I mean that sewing in a graft and sewing the carotid seems a lot more detailed than uh, than what we do. So let me ask you, Mike, because I, I think that there's 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 some interest in this. We talk, we're going to touch on endoscopy a tiny bit because I don't see endoscopy taking off in this country, and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And yet, if you look at some of the Asian countries, it's exploding and it's become a a huge part of spine care. Why do you think it's not taking off in this country to the same degree? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. By the way, Bob Harbaugh was the guy I was I was talking about. I, I at first I resisted saying anything, but I'm like, you know, Bob should get credit for for sharing that kernel about uh, an awake anesthesia with me. You know, I think there are a lot of reasons, and um, I'll give you three reasons. Number one is in China, for example, uh, a microscope, an operating microscope is what, like $250 to $400,000, right, U.S. dollars? It's an expensive piece of capital equipment. An endoscope in its tower could be as low as fifty dollars or $100,000. So in China, they realized that they had to have solutions that were less expensive because of the size of the population with 1.4 billion people. So the orthopedists began doing lots of endoscopic surgery out of necessity. There were no microscopes. And so they got really good at it. Now, when you go to China, every major hospital has one or two orthopedic spine surgeons that only do endoscopy. They don't do any other kind of spine surgeries. They don't ACDFs. They don't do um, deformity surgery. They don't do trauma. They just do endoscopy. And so they've become really good at it, right? Now, in America, the opposite happened, which is capital equipment is not an issue, but the billing codes for endoscopic surgery really weren't around. So endoscopy only existed in places where, uh, or I should say largely existed in places like surgery centers where people were doing work comp, cash pay type of business. And you can say whatever you want about it, but it's certainly not going to be an academic institution. And I can only think of a handful of folks who were doing endoscopy in the lumbar spine, like Al Telfian at Brown, uh, like Peter Witt in Colorado and Christoph Hofstetter in Seattle who trained with us because people are like, well, why, why do I 
need to learn something that people use for work comp in unindicated situations anyways, right? So it became this kind of thing where it's like two worlds of spine and they were like the the nether world of spine and it got this bias. I think that's changing now, but there is a real learning curve. It is totally different to do that kind of surgery. And so I told myself I wanted to learn one more new thing before I got too old to learn anything new is, is really how I approached it. Do you think that orthopedic surgeons have an advantage when it comes to endoscopy over neurosurgeons just because of their training? You know, they're used to doing arthroscopy underwater, which we don't do, you know, and, and pituitaries are done, of course, but that's not underwater. I think they have a little bit of an advantage and they're afraid of the dura, right? So that's a huge advantage for them. <laughs> we're not afraid of the dura, so we're drilling right next to it. Uh, and we're so good at microscopy, right, and, and fine manipulation. I think they have an advantage. And they, they also tend to work more in surgery centers, right, in a sort of a, a business model that's different from us. So they've got a couple advantages. But I know that many neurosurgeons who, who put their mind to it, they get really good at this stuff. And I would encourage the young people out there, if you're looking for a place to make your hay and spine, um, that would be a place. And, you know, all, all, all of our former fellows do it like um, Yinda Lee in Australia, Marcus Ling in Singapore, and Meng Huang in Houston, our last cadre of external fellows. They all started doing endoscopy day one after fellowship. So I think um, if, you, if you sort of bust your cherry in training, it's a lot easier to, to go along with it. Yeah, you know, when I look at orthopedic training and I see these orthopods doing all their arthroscopy and being used to looking at a monitor or a screen and not looking down at the wound and used to using the arthroscopic tools, it seems like that makes that that sort of leap to endoscopy for spine a little bit easier. And that also explains why neurosurgeons are used to working through microscopes because that's our entire training. And so going to a microendoscopic disc where you're using a microscope um, with a tubular retractor is a lot easier transition. Yeah, I will tell you that both methods are much more ergonomic, for example, than using loops. Like when I see people operating with loops doing, you know, lumbar surgery, I always kind of shudder because it's like their, their neck is craning downward. It's a bad ergonomic occupational hazard to me. Um, I love the idea of like using an exoscope. I think Dan Kim talks about this a lot. An exoscope is sort of macroscopic, right? Um, but you can see the field and look up at a screen instead of looking down into a wound. And it's a great teaching tool, too. People love to look at a screen for teaching rooms full of residents or, or, or medical students. They can actually see what you're doing, whereas looking through some of the other devices unassisted really limits that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me then, you, what is your next leap? We've done the endoscopy. You're doing done the awake procedures. You've done the hundred year old fusions. What's next on your list? Well, I'm failing at it now. I will admit, but I I thought I had it figured out, which is how to sagittally rebalance people without doing a giant surgery on them. Uh -huh. To me, uh, sagittal rebalancing surgeries are the most morbid because of their, the, what you're actually doing to people. We've actually been doing it really minimally invasive. And, and, uh, and I know the OLIF folks are doing that. And, and this is not an OLIF approach. I know you do OLIFs. This is something a little different. But I think just the act of rebalancing people, no matter how you do it, is a, is a big deal. So what we're thinking about doing is rebalancing people in stages. So instead of you know, one or two days of correction for a deformity, you do it over a course of many, many days in a week or a month or whatever, much smaller little bites of surgery. So 
treating a 85 or 92 year old is actually something that could be done and manageable. So what are you doing anteriorly different than the OLIF? Are you doing sort of like your endoscopic graft into the disc space? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so we're doing two things, and it's 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 a little complicated. I don't want to overspeak because you know it's an area of development. One is one is just doing like a traditional a lift, like leveraging the a lift for the work. But you know you can't correct everything with just an a lift, right? right? So we have to do the a lift at the bottom, then we have to endoscopically fuse all the way up to L one or T ten or whatever. Another method that we're doing is uh, is is cutting the ALL with the endoscope, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a little bit blind, so it's hard to do. Um, but it has a lot of promise too. The cage technology is still being built out, if you will. Um, not by me per se, but I'm just telling you the kind of ideas that we are working actively with. In, in any case, what we're trying to do is make a, a surgery so it's so digestible that let's say you're having trouble in the middle of a surgery. One of the great things about the wake surgery is if there's a problem, you just stop, you know, put one stitch in and flip the person over, right? So it's really like come back to fight another day or whatever you need to do. And I think that when you approach it that way, as opposed to, you know, you're in the middle of a PSO, you've destabilized, your screws are in, no rod, whatever, and you and it's suddenly the patient codes, like you're kind of hosed, right? Yeah. So so we're trying to make it digestible in that way. Yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what the ultimate surgical solution is for sagittal correction within a, via a minimally invasive uh, avenue, because... I will say to date, I haven't been impressed with the options. To me, if you need true sagittal correction, if you're not doing some sort of posterior osteotomy in order to close things down, it's truly, I I find very hard to get a reasonable sagittal correction. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But what if you could take someone and you could do a couple osteotomies one day, you know, like through the, through a very MIS approach, then a week later, do a couple more osteotomies and they can go home, right? In a brace. And then you do your anterior part and then you do your screw. So you divide it in four pieces, right? So that, so you, you, maybe you'd say, well, that's more morbid and, and it might be there. It might have to be worked out, but I think about it this way. The deformity happens slowly and we should correct it slowly. Kind of like when people fix your teeth with braces, right? It takes time to do that properly. You can't do it in one day. And that's why it's so successful. So in this case, you're more of an inventor than an early adopter. Well, you know, I, I, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants before us, right? And many of them have been on this podcast, and and I'm always humbled by how much I don't know. And and when I told you that we're still in, in the stages, we're still learning because we're not just succeeding. If we we're just winning, you would have seen the papers come out already, right? We're having issues, um, you know. Maybe we can talk about it on another podcast, but but we're learning a lot. We're getting smarter. And, and that's the hard part about being at the front like you and me is that you have to absorb those shocks uh, without a lot of direction, except through friends like you that I can call and say, HAP, this happened. What do you what do you think happened? You know, so, you know, I've always found that if you're going to do something like you're describing, it's really important to have a almost a industry partner who has engineers and people with time and skill sets to dedicate to some of the solutions from an engineering perspective. I know you do a lot with uh, industry. Do you have people that you turn to when you're looking for sort of solutions and 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 with things like this? Yeah, it's people like you, right? It's people like Ed Benzel. You know, it's people like Juan Uribe, right? Um, I think I think the best thinking happens at the bar at 4 a.m., which we do, right? Um, it's amazing how how 
creative genius often comes from interacting. That's what we love about this podcast. It's a little bit one unidirectional, but I think just the sharing of knowledge, it's, it's the collective advancement of science and, and human progress happens with, with us communicating with each other. Uh, but you're right. You can't do it in America without industry because there's the FDA, there are, there's a lot of regulation. Uh, I wish we could be like Ralph Cloward washing off bone dowels in our garage, right? It's, it's not like that anymore. So, you know, when I think of your, when I watch you give a talk, and I've always liked your talks, they're very energetic and I find them very engaging. When I watch you give a talk on a podium, I look at your disclosure slide and I think you have to leave that slide up for 15 minutes so I can read everything on there. <laughs> You know what's funny? I was uh, I was a young attending, and Alex Vaccaro, who a lot of people know, uh, was 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 moderating. And I sat down after my talk, and I thought he would ask me some question about my talk. He goes, "Mike, you don't have enough disclosures. You and I need to talk more." <laughs> <laughs> and if you know Alex, that's exactly what he would say. Well, his disclosure slide is four slides long. <laughs> that's right. But you know, Ed Benzel had something to say about that. And I think, I think it is worth saying, and, and I'll get a little preachy about it. He goes, if you have no conflicts, then I'm not interested. And, and I think, you know, the ultimate conflict of interest, of course, is that we operate on people and we're paid to operate on patients to try to make them better. And you're absolutely right. We can't do it without the Medtronic or Depew or Stryker and these big companies and the startups. You know, look, are they all good? It's, it's hard to say, but but getting a product to market that people can actually use requires their input, requires the FDA. I think there's a good balance in America, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of stakeholders, and hopefully it's done all out in the open, transparently, so people can see what's happening. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I've I've watched over the past twenty years people's disclosures, and I've watched it go from somebody working with one company, and slowly it's gone to two, to three, to four, to five, to six. And I paralleled it to sort of sports figures. You know, we used to, we grew up watching people play on one team their entire career. And now they're switching teams every contract, every contract they're with a new team. What is it about us, our society that's changed so much that we are no longer in one-on-one -on -one relationships long-term? We're in multiple relationships and we change so often. What do you think that's all about? I mean, I think it's it's like you said, it's societal. Look at Michael Jordan versus LeBron James, right? Uh, if you watch The Last Dance on Netflix or ESPN, Michael Jordan played with the Bulls pretty much his entire career. You're absolutely right. He helped them get where they needed to go. Uh, LeBron James, I mean, you know what, Cleveland and Miami, now LA just won the championship, right? It's I don't want to say it's more mercenary. It's certainly more more dynamic, dy dynamic, right? It's it's it, I think culturally it's different. I mean, how many people do you know now that work for one company their whole life, like Toyota or, or IBM. It, you just don't see it anymore. And yeah, but my, my question is why? Why are we seeing across all societal lines, from sports to neurosurgery to automotive industry, why does nobody stay with their one original relationship or company anymore? Well, I think the pace of change is accelerating, right? It's like Moore's Law, right? the pace of change of everything. I mean, think about the, the time between the first pedicle screws and the next innovation. It was a long gap. Now, every year, there are actually new and interesting and potentially potentially important, right? Things, uh, advances in technology emerging, right? Every day, there's something coming in neurosurgery. And I think that it's the pace of, of 
change. I mean, look at car technology, right? How quickly it changes. Um, I think it's a, a testament to human innovation and competition and capital at work. Uh, it's an exciting time. It's what makes it what drew me to neurosurgery, right? That can you imagine you go your whole life and you're just doing the same operation for 30 years with no advancement? To me, I think there are some good elements, but I also, like you, I, I, um, I reminisce on the time when people could really be loyal to one brand or one product or one company or one spouse or whatever it was, and that would be good enough for them. So I think, I think you're right about that being a little bit something we miss. So we're, we're at a point where there's now hopefully some young guys coming out of training, maybe listening to this, maybe there are four of them. And they have an interest in advancing things, it, it changing the landscape, it being one of those guys that does something that changes the way surgeries perform throughout the world. What advice do you give them? Yeah, I mean, we're almost out of time, so I just want to try to address that quickly, but it's very complicated. Um, I'll just give you my advice. I think the biggest danger is that you try to do something new without knowing what exists. You have to read voraciously, journals, textbooks. You have to go to all the meetings and talk to everybody. You have to go to the industry and see what they're doing. You have to know what's out there before you try something new. I've seen too many young people try to invent something new that was already invented before and failed, right? You've seen that, right, uh, yeah. Dr. Mabasar? I've done It's that. very sad. <laughs> um, so the key is you got to get knowledgeable. And then I think hanging out with people who are smart. I think hanging out with Ed Benzel or Juan Uribe or Reg Hayde or Chris Shaffrey. When you hang out with those people, you really get wisdom. Buy them a scotch at the bar. I mean, they'll buy you drinks all night. That's how you get to know what's going on. And with that, the little spark comes. And then, you know, maybe you're going to change everything about how we do surgery. Okay. Well, I think we're at a wrapping up point. I think you've also made me realize the reason I'm not with you on that is because I'm usually in bed at three in the morning when you're at these meetings, learning all this stuff. <laughs> next time, next time. <laughs> all right. Well, Mike, thank you very much. I thought that was a very enlightening session and uh, glad we could do that together. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Mobasser with the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, and we're very excited about the annual forum meeting coming up on uh, October 29th through the 31st, and so that's going to be next week. We've obviously had to convert our format to an online format that will have live webinars and full virtual sessions. In order to make this compatible with surgeon schedules as much as possible, the meeting's been moved to Thursday at 5 o'clock to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Friday at 3 o'clock to 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and Saturday 7 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Please feel free to attend either all or part of this, uh, and uh, these sessions will be recorded, so you can always listen to them on your own time.